0: The cover of the latest edition of the, the New Yorker includes an illustration of a woman pushing a shopping cart through a fireworks megastore. Uh, if you had a chance to see that, even if you haven't, you can go out to the uh, church's Facebook page. You'll see I posted it there yesterday for you to take a look at. Uh, but the boxes lining the shelves are named with the challenges of the day. As Francois Moulet observes, even as the debt ceiling crisis has been averted for now, and even as we continue to emerge from the pandemic with new life, the smoke from Canadian wildfires that blanketed the eastern part of the country in a toxic haze this week has brought our deep seated sense of unease to the fore once again. In her new cover for the June 19, 2023 issue, the cartoonist Roz Chase paints in bright colors some of the most pressing and angst provoking issues plaguing us these days, alongside everyday headaches all ready to explode. Apparently, you're not the only one that they can make a cover out of this. Life can be pretty overwhelming these days, and just as much as we find ourselves ready to explode, still more are ready to implode if they're not ready to explode. That's what pressure does it can blow you up or it can crush you, neither of which is all that appealing. So, amidst the crisis of the day and the craziness, That floods our minds and the despair that fills our hearts comes Romans 5 to speak a different word and what a word it speaks Martin Luther got a little giddy with this chapter he writes in his commentary st. Paul speaks in this chapter with great joy and exceeding exultation in the whole Bible there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text like I said giddy and there's a good reason for such high remarks. You'll see the first part of verse one, since we are justified by faith. That's what Paul's been saying all along in Romans up to this point. It serves as a as transitionally here, but it's worth repeating that we are justified by faith means that God declares that we are in the right, sins forgiven, and members of the covenant family, conferred with the status of righteous, and not because of anything we have done, but because of everything. That God has done and best at the best we do is simply respond and we get to enjoy such benefits as what we hear in the second part of verse 1 we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we have been justified we enjoy a position of peace that's the implication here of what it means to be one who's justified by faith I'm reminded here of the famed evangelist Billy Graham now not not many people I know would be reminded as they read a text like this of a famed evangelist. So I know I'm a little bit odd in that sense. But I was reminded here of his own version of the four-step gospel track. Uh, And maybe some of you have seen this. Steps to peace with God was his version. I, I think of the other one, which is the four spiritual laws. It's also referred to steps to peace. And the first step simply declares God loves you and wants you to experience peace and eternal life. This part of Romans 5.1, this one about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, is cited alongside that first step by Graham. So I went out and I visited the website, and of course there's a website, steps2peace.org. I went and looked at it this last week, and near the top of the page, Billy Graham is quoted as having once said, I guarantee that you can know peace with God, peace of soul, peace of mind, and joy such as you have never experienced. That, of course would be quite the benefit. That's quite something to have a life that encompasses all of that. And far different than the pressures that assail us if we were to live into that place. But is that what Paul means here (laughs) when he talks about peace? It sounds great, but is that what Paul means when he's talking about it here in Romans 5? Well, looking at how peace, or arenae, is used in the Septuagint, it translates the Hebrew word shalom. And that holds the idea of positive benefit, well-being salvation prosperity it's not like our popular understanding of peace where we talk about like the cessation of hostilities and war there's a positive sense here and so Douglas Moo who probably has written uh, one of the most substantial commentaries on the book of Romans his is the commentary that other commentaries cite in their footnotes it's something like 950 pages long uh, on this book but Moo writes this he says It's not an inner sense of well-being or feeling at peace, what we might call the peace of God, but the outward situation of being in a relationship of peace with God. And Following the structure of the paragraph here in Romans, peace here is connected to reconciliation in verses 10 and 11, which not only serve to frame the paragraph, if you think about the front and end of the paragraph there, but it reinforces this context of peace with God as opposed to peace that comes uh, from God. Well, then we turn into the, the first part of the second verse, and we see through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Now, whom, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. But this picture of what is gained here is significant. There very well may be a, a nod here uh, to cultic imagery. As some have observed, the related verb that we have here translated as access is picked up in the offering of sacrifices throughout the Septuagint. And it may give a nod here to being in the presence of the living God. But the grace in which we stand is a particular note for us this morning. The justified now find themselves living in that place where grace reigns. If you go to chapter 5, verse 21, you see another place you could live where sin reigns. The justified live in that place where grace now reigns. And so returning back to Mu, just because I like saying his name, I mean, who doesn't like to say Mu from time to time? Here is the new status of the believer as one in which grace is characteristic and dominant. Which takes us to the second part of verse 2. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. The longing for God's glory was well within the imagination of early Jesus Christ. Uh, followers who are Jewish Christians, like Paul. Stemming from such text as Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Or Habakkuk 2, verse 14, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. But what is this glory that they're looking forward to seeing? Well, it's a return to the promise of Genesis chapter 1. The return of the true human vocation. It's a return back to or recovering that which has been marred and lost within the fall. But it's also the returning of the divine glory in creation. It's setting the world right once more. And early Christian writers like Paul very much see in all of this the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is now present amongst us. God's presence here with us but also in us and transforming us and changing us. And you can note uh, how they might have thought about some of these things if you go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul locates the glory in Christ who is in you. Who's in you. So justified by faith, peace with God, access to grace, and the hope of glory. And that's just two verses. We just unpacked two verses from the text. But then verse 3 sneaks up on us. And I oftentimes quote m at this point, because it's where the mood all changes. There the talk turns to afflictions. Why sour all of what has just been said? Why sour it with afflictions? Why, why bring that up? Well, Paul here is writing to an audience that most certainly faced challenges, and would so all the more in the coming years. And Paul himself, the writer of this text, has been one who's been confronted with affliction and persecution himself and so here he is this recipient of mistreatment writing to an audience that has known mistreatment and will know it all the more all of this is real life and I literally have in my notes here a blank because you can fill in the blank some of you are more mindful of cursing others you might want to put that in there but real life whatever those aren't throwaway events whatever you might be facing Whatever you might be experienced. Paul's writing into real experience here as well. And he says these are not throwaway events. No, for Paul and other Jesus followers, we also boast or we have confidence or we rejoice in our afflictions. That's mighty strange talk. I think we can admit that. It's mighty strange talk. But there's something about that posture that makes us stronger people. That we enter into that type of posture, we're made stronger in the midst of that suffering. That when we bear up under affliction, we display fortitude, we in turn show ourselves to have been proven that the faith in us is real and it has benefit. One commentator noted that Christians are like tea bags. What? We get stronger when the water is hottest. And that's what Paul gets at here. And again, not because we are inherently strong. Not because I'm some sort of mighty person by myself. But rather because of God's love given to us. And that love that resides in us. That we become not only spirit people, which the spirit lives, but we become literally people of the Shema, hero Israel. That we become people who can love the Lord our God with all of our being because of God's love being poured out in us and through us so with all of that what does that cost jimmy that's a great sales pitch sounds like a lot of benefits how much does it cost i can remember a couple of occasions where a salesperson has rambled on and on about the incredible benefits of a particular item or service all while veiling the cost usually this is a sign that it's going to be more than what you really want to pay but paul here is not a college student selling knives. I'm not going to tell you specific instances. He's not a salesperson hawking timeshares. Instead, we are met with an altogether surprising cost, and that shows up here in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you missed that one, the cost here is completely taken up by Jesus Christ and not only taken up by Christ but taken up on behalf of a lot who well quite frankly have been shown in Romans even to this point early on to be godless and weak enemies of God in fact Romans chapter 1 verse 30 calls them God haters God haters and just how extraordinary extraordinary this action is on God's part is accentuated in verse 7 With the contrast between human efforts giving one's life for something good or honorable or somebody you hold in esteem but here god is different god dies for the ungodly on behalf of those who reject god who work in opposition to god to people who kill god michael bird provides probably the best description of how odd this all sounds when he writes this christ does not die for the righteous He dies to make the unrighteous righteous. He goes on to say, This is the topsy-turvy, crazy, freaky, wildly illogical, world-denying, self-giving love that God shows sinners in Christ Jesus. That's in a biblical commentary, that sentence. And it's awesome. But that's how crazy it is. That's how peculiar and strange this is. And in case you are not convinced of God's love, there's proof. We have proof. Verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, But God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. So in recap, and drawing on the words of David Johnson, who writes in a devotional, While we were still liars, thieves, adulterers, murderers, and addicts, Christ died for us. While we were still grumblers, gossips, idolaters, embezzlers, and hypocrites... Christ died for us while we're still slanderers, traitors, infidels, atheists, and agnostics. Christ died for us while we're still narcissists, cynics, consumerists, coveters, and fornicators. Christ died for us. Christ died for all of us sinners. No exceptions to prove God's love for all of us sinners. No exceptions. We come to see that love for what it is in verse 8. And when God's love is poured into our hearts, as we see in verse 5, it changes us. We become different people. And isn't that what we've been longing for all along? We usually begin these services and talking about experiencing God's grace so that we might know God's peace. And that's what we're talking about here. Vestopedia, there is such a thing. Investopedia defines cost-benefit analysis as this. The process used to measure the benefits of a decision or taking action minus the costs associated with taking that action. Toss that out. This is all benefit. The cost here has all been completely taken up by our loving God. The only analysis left for us is the benefit. Is the benefit. Exodus chapter 19 gives the account of an ancient people who have been rescued from their enslavement in Egypt. And they arrive at that base of that mountain where they will receive God's instruction. If you know the Exodus account, you know that Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments show up. To say that this group has has seen a lot would be an understatement. They've seen their rescue, of course, and all the signs that accompany it as they come out of Egypt. The parting of the sea and the defeat of Pharaoh's army... They see a miraculous uh, produced provisions from heaven and victory on the battlefield and this people is now met with the word from God through Moses which is this you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself now therefore if you obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples indeed the whole earth is mine but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom And a holy nation. So, how do you respond when you have that kind of word come from the Lord? Well, their answer was this everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. But then we get to chapter 32. Moses is still on the mountain. And this is what happens when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. For those who are keeping track here, the violation that's going to ensue here is a violation not only of what they verbally committed to, but also a violation of the so-called first two commandments. To not have any other gods before me and not to have idols. I imagine that the other commandments were soon to follow if they hadn't been violated already. The ancients, they blew it. And future generations do not seem to fare any better. The pressures of the day have that effect on us. Every single one of us. But God's love does something different. It does something different. Grace shows us a new way. In fact, the lectionary readings for today reinforce this picture of the links to which God will go. In the gospel account in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has uh, compassion on the crowds, those he sees as harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. He calls his disciples to join him in going and to that harvest. It's an extension of God's love or what the Old Testament emphasizes as God's covenant faithfulness. So in closing here this morning, I want to give us two considerations to have in our hearts and minds as we we pause at this portion of Romans and as we prepare, as we continue in this journey throughout the book. The first one is this, and it actually comes from two quotes from the late Brennan Manning. Manning observes this, he says, My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I think that's something for us to hold on to. He also says, God loves you unconditionally, as you are and not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. And God's grace makes us something more. I think these resonate with what we hear at this point in Romans. But the second one is this, and it undoes something that lies in our hearts, I think, many a times for many of us, me included, popular quote that over the years has been mistakenly assumed to be a theme from the Bible has attested to polls over the last 20 years. Namely, God helps those who help themselves. You heard that one? Anybody live in that one? God helps those who help themselves, or variations of that. Some attribute this line, of course, to Benjamin Franklin. It draws out of Aesop's fable and even goes back into antiquity from the Greeks. But as David Johnson rightly affirms and as Paul most clearly makes us aware, the gospel has nothing to do with the Lord helps those who help themselves and everything to do with the Lord helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's what we hear in Romans. We hear the story of a God who loves us and not only a story, but a letter that's written to Christians in Rome and now imprinted and written to us here today. So if there's anything for us to take away this morning, it's this, God loves you, has proven that love, has demonstrated that in Jesus Christ. So whatever things you might be trying to build, whatever kingdoms you might be looking to establish, whatever places in your heart where you say, I'm not worthy of any of this, none of us are. But here's the thing, it has nothing to do with God's love. It doesn't stop God at all. God keeps going and keeps pouring out that love. And so my encouragement to you this morning, if you find yourself walking through that mega store of firework boxes that have the troubles of the day printed on each and every one of them, and you find yourself at a place where you're ready to explode or you're about to implode, go back and remember Romans 5.8, that God has proven his love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Christ died for you. May we hold that in this day and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us today. And as we oftentimes say this in prayer, we hear in Scripture here just how great that love is. So, Lord, this morning, as you hold us, as your Spirit works amongst us, as you work within us, May you once more fill us with that great love. That we might know your presence in a real, tangible way. That your people here this morning would know you and know that you are for them and with them. We trust you, Lord, and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.